Business meeting, uh, Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. And um, as people come in, uh, we'll hold votes. But I think that uh, it's probably best for Ben and I to go ahead and make our opening comments. And I know we both have to be down on the floor uh, at 1030 to begin the North Korean uh, movement. So uh, on the agenda today, we have three resolutions. First, we will consider SRAS 330. I want to personally congratulate the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet for winning the 2015 Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. It is an honor that is well earned and rightfully deserved. Their courage, perseverance, and success over the last five years have culminated in this great honor. More importantly, however, their work has done immeasurable good in Tunisia, a country that has chosen democracy and has become a beacon of light in a region wrought with conflict, bloodshed, and oppression. I hope that Tunisia continues to focus on the follow-through that is so crucial for continued, lasting success for the country, for its people, and for the region. With SRS 330, it is our hope that Congress will add its voice to those congratulating the Quartet and reaffirming the United States support for Tunisia as it fulfills its people's desire to become a more stable, free, and prosperous country. Thank you, Senators Coons, Cardin, Kane, and Purdue for their work on this resolution. We will also consider SRES 361, a resolution urging robust funding for humanitarian relief in Syria with an amendment. I want to thank Senator Cardin, as usual, for working with me on this resolution. This resolution calls on countries to make and fulfill their pledges for humanitarian relief in and around Syria. Syrian conflict has killed hundreds of thousands of people and engulfed the region in a humanitarian catastrophe on a massive scale. The victims of this horrendous civil war desperately need help. I'm proud to say that the United States remains the largest single donor to such efforts, and we are up to date in fulfilling our pledges. But more is needed. It's a hopeful sign that the donor conference in the United Kingdom last Thursday generated $10 billion in pledges. Those pledges, however, need to be converted to actual contributions. Only 43% of the $2.9 billion pledged to the UN's 2015 appeal was funded. With this resolution, we hope to add our voice to those calling on strong donor support for the pledges made at the most recent conference in London. And lastly, we'll consider SRES 99, calling upon Iran to fulfill its promises of assistance in the case of the disappearance of U.S. citizen Robert Levinson. To the Levinson family, Bob's wife, Christine, son, Dan, and his sister-in-law, Suzanne, our thoughts and prayers have and continue to be with you. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, we appreciated the opportunity to talk to you earlier. This is a topic uh, for what it's worth. It's a good deal of time was spent last night in a classified setting. Um, we are sorry you've been through this harrowing experience, and I know it continues uh, without a lot of information, and we're determined to do what we can to make sure that that changes. So thank you so much for being here. We sincerely appreciate you being here, as I just mentioned, uh, and I don't think we can fully appreciate uh, what you've gone through personally over the last eight years. I want to thank Senators Rubio and Nelson for their work on this resolution. It's a symbolic message that should continue to raise the awareness of this incredibly sad situation and should remind each of us to push the U.S. administration, the government of Iran, to, and the government of Iran to do everything they can to return Bob, his family, and his friends to his country. Um, 
The family stressed uh, what a patriot he was as we met prior to coming out of here, and I think uh, all of us know that, and we need to do everything we can uh, to get him back. With that, I'd like to recognize the distinguished ranking member for his comment, Senator Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, first of all, thank you for arranging this business meeting uh, to pass three very important resolutions from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, I also acknowledge this is an important day on foreign policy. We're going to do the North Korean Sanction Act on the floor of the Senate. I expect that it will pass overwhelmingly later this afternoon, which is a real credit to your leadership in engineering its consideration on the floor but also this committee's bipartisan work to produce a product uh, that is worthy of that type of, uh, I think, strong support uh, in the United States Senate. And then we will have a very important hearing following this on, on Central Africa, uh, a region of the, uh, the world that has been in conflict for way too long with, with uh, tragic consequences to its population. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to that hearing. So we have a very busy day. In regards to the three resolutions that are under consideration, thank you for acknowledging the Levison family that's here. Uh, Congressman Deitch, it's nice to have you also with us today in the work that you did in the House to um, position uh, the, uh, our action in regards to uh, Robert Levinson. Uh, let me make it clear, we'll use every avenue available to us uh, to get a full accounting and release of, uh, of uh, Robert Levinson. I can assure you of that. And this resolution is, as the chairman said uh, before we came in here, is, is an important step, but just a step. We intend to do a lot more than just the action on this uh, resolution. So we, we thank you ver for very much. He's the, the longest uh, held United States civilian in the nation's history. Uh, so uh, we will very much be working uh, to uh, deal with this, with this issue. Uh, in regards to S-Res 361, Humanitarian Relief for Syria, uh, thank you for, and uh, let me also acknowledge, as you did, Senator, uh, Senator Nelson's and Rubio's work in regards to the Levinson uh, re resolution. Uh, in regards to the funding resolution uh, on, on Syria, I want to thank you for your uh, strong uh, help in putting together this resolution. The humanitarian crisis in Syria is incredible. Obviously, our first efforts is to try to resolve the conflict uh, in Syria uh, and have a government that represents all the people without uh, President Assad and then that we can concentrate on uh, the uh, threat of ISIL and not only contain but destroy ISIL. That's, that's our objective. In the meantime, there's this uh, refugee dislocation, the largest flow in the world, and it's having it's a huge humanitarian crisis, uh, including uh, the direct countries, uh, our strategic ally, Jordan, which is threatened by the number of refugees, I mean, there are many other countries, Lebanon, uh, uh, Turkey, the number that go into Turkey, and then we know the refugee flow into Greece and an effort to get into Europe and the flow into Europe and the impact it's having uh, instability in all those regions. So it's important that this humanitarian crisis be dealt with globally. And as you pointed out, the United States has been the leader. It's been the leader in the dollars that we put up, $5.1 billion to date, uh, as well as convening the international community and this resolution uh, furthers uh, that objective. And then lastly, SRES 330, uh, congratulating the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet for winning the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize. The resolution, I think, is self-explanatory. But Tunisia is, is an area that is uh, uh, beset by a turmoil. We know that. It's a rough area. And yet they have demonstrated that when elect officials work with civil societies, you can get things done. And I think that's a model for that region. 
And I think this resolution is very appropriate. Uh, so in all three of these resolutions, they're very important business, and I hope we can get a quorum and pass them. Thank you. We need about a two-minute filibuster here. Would anyone uh, like to make comments there? Go ahead. Uh, I think Senator Murphy might have. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I don't have two minutes. I just uh, want to thank uh, those who are bringing the Syria resolution in particular before us today. The gist of it is uh, a call to the international community to step up to the plate uh, and fulfill obligations that they have made. And for those that have uh, um, who have not made a big enough commitment to make it bigger. Um, but I also hope that the pressure is still on us uh, here in this Congress to support increased humanitarian aid for the region. Uh, I think most all of us have been to some of those camps. Uh, we have heard the stories of the World Food Program uh, perpetually running out of money such that last fall they had to cut off food aid for those individuals not living in the camps, those individuals and families who are living in um, cities and communities on the streets, uh, places like Lebanon and Jordan. And of course, we know what happens when uh, they don't get basic nourishment and sustenance. They get it from somewhere else. They often sign up with the very groups that we are fighting because that's the only offer they get in order to feed their family or put a paycheck uh, into their pocket uh, in order to put a roof over their children's head. Uh, and so um, I agree that the international community certainly has to do more. There are many of our very good friends in that neighborhood who have not stepped up and made commitments anywhere close to what the United States has made. Um, but there is going to be more required of us as well. And I know this committee is uh, committed to doing uh, our part as we move forward uh, as this crisis uh, continues to unfold. Thanks for putting this resolution before us today, Mr. Chairman. No, thank you. And thank you for the comments. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, I just uh, want to thank both of you for the bipartisan way in which you continue uh, to move us forward. I'm glad to be a co-sponsor and supporter of all three resolutions. Um, I'd like to thank my friend Congressman Deutsch uh, for his advocacy and uh, to Dan Levinson and Christine Levinson uh, and to Suzanne Halpin. Um, I've raised the issue of, of Robert Levinson both uh, in classified settings and in public settings with members of the administration. I think this resolution is an appropriate and bipartisan way for us to continue to press the Iranians uh, to keep their commitments. Uh, and his long and uh, painful um, absence from us, uh, I think, is something that um, we just wanted, uh, all of us wanted you to know that uh, we share your concerns about his safe return uh, and um, about Iran uh, continuing to be a regime that we can't trust and that we need to press to keep their commitments. Um, I'll simply join uh, Senator Murphy in saying that our support for um, those who are suffering through the, the horrific ongoing civil war in Syria uh, is something I think has motivated all the members of this committee. And last, the, uh, the Tunisian Quartet um, and their heroic efforts um, to bring some semblance of stability and democracy to Tunisia uh, were worthy uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's my hope uh, that all of us will support those in Tunisia willing to make the tough uh, political and economic reforms necessary to secure progress in Tunisia. Thank you for moving all three of these resolutions today. Any additional comments? If not, uh, we'll move to the business at hand. Um, first order business today on the agenda will be SRS 330. Congratulations. Congratulating the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet for winning the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize. I know Senator Cardin's made comments. Anyone else wish to speak? Seeing none, is there a motion to approve the resolution? Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded the question on the motion to approve SRS 330. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The resolution is approved. Next we have 
Next, we'll move to SREF 361, urging robust funding for the humanitarian relief for Syria. I know Senator Cardin has spoken to this. Anyone else? Seeing none, I would entertain a motion to consider the Corker Amendment by voice vote. So move. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the Corker Amendment. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendment is agreed to. Are there further amendments? Seeing none. Is there a motion to approve the resolution as amended? So moved. Seconded. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRS 361 as amended. All in favor will say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The resolution is amended and agreed to. Next, we'll consider SRS uh, 99, calling on the government of Iran to fulfill its promises of assistance in the case of Robert Levinson, the longest-held United States civilian in our nation's history. Anyone like to speak to this resolution? If there is no further discussion on this resolution, I would entertain a motion to approve all three Rubio amendments by voice vote and so block. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. Question on the motion to approve the, all three amendments in block. All in favor say aye. With that, the ayes have it. The amendments are agreed to. Are there further amendments? Hearing none, is there a motion to approve the resolution as amended? So moved. Second. Is there a second? second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRS 99 as amended. All in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? With that, the ayes have it, and the resolution, as amended, is agreed to, and that completes the committee's business. Congressman Deutsch, thank you for being here. I know y'all uh, criticize the Senate a great deal, as you should. I want you to know this is probably the quickest business <laughs> meeting we've had. We did it in your honor. Thank you for being here to support this. With that, I ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes without objection, so ordered. And with that, the business meeting is adjourned. We'll now begin the hearing on uh, that was scheduled. Senator Flake has agreed to, uh, to chair the meeting. I'm going to go to the floor and begin the work on the North Korea uh, resolution with Senator Gardner and Senator Menendez. And with that, uh, you want to come over here and call it to order. And uh, Mr. Chairman, I understand that Senator Markey will also uh, be uh, in the chair here for the hearings while we're on the floor. Uh, I'm going to, after Senator Flake uh, calls the, uh, makes his statement, I'm going to make a brief statement and then turn it over to Senator Markey. Thanks, for <laughs> Thanks again. For This hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, as 
Chairman Corker mentioned, uh, he and Ranking Member Cardin will be needed on the floor today to manage the committee's North Korea sanctions bill that we'll vote on this afternoon. Um, so with your forbearance here, I'll chair this hearing and Senator Markey will come in uh, and serve as Ranking Minority Member. Um, <clears throat> I'll make a <clears throat> very brief statement and then turn it over to Senator Cardin before he has to leave. But uh, I want to thank our witnesses for taking the time to arrange your schedule to be here today. And thanks for contributing to this hearing. Today's hearing will focus on U.S. policy in Central Africa. This is a region uh, in which we're, there have been many challenges to peace, uh, stability, and to good governance. We've all seen the reports of violence in Burundi, including the recent reports of mass graves and difficulties in deploying an African Union peacekeeping force. We'll also continue to see additional examples of leaders seeking to extend their terms in office either through illegal manipulation of the process or through frequent changes to existing constitutions, inhibiting the development of a stable rule of law. We're also concerned, uh, we're all concerned about these developments and we need to ensure that U.S. policy is property, properly aligned to deal with these challenges. Uh, today's hearing will help us get a sense of whether or not we are meeting these challenges. And with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Cardin for a statement. Well, Chairman Flake, first of all, thank you very much uh, for your leadership on Africa and for your leadership on foreign policy issues and for uh, convening this hearing. The tragedy in Central Africa, I think, is well understood by the people in this room, but not by the American people in the world. The millions of people who have been killed, dislocated, lives have been changed forever because of the long-standing conflict requires U.S. leadership to do something about, and it continues to this day. So let me just make uh, three suggestions where the United States can make a, a major difference, and I want to first uh, thank our two distinguished witnesses on our first panel, and we'll have a second panel, for your leadership uh, in the Great Lakes area and in Africa. Uh, it is clear uh, that we need to do more. First and foremost, as Chairman Flake mentioned, you have individual leaders in these countries that manipulate their constitution and brutalize opposition so they can stay in power. Uh, the human rights violations are unspeakable in some of these countries. Good governance has been absent. Uh, broad human rights violations and corruption is widespread. We need to invest more in democracy and democratic institutions. And when you take a look at the budget support for Africa for democracy, it is embarrassingly low. We need to make more resources available to build up the institutions of good governance. You know, one of the, I've said this a couple times in this committee, I spent a lot of time on the Helsinki Commission uh, in, my, in my service in the House of Representatives and now my service in the United States Senate. And in Europe, the lesson that was learned that if you're going to have stable regimes, it's more than just having a military, and it's more than just trying to have wealth in your economy, because a lot of these countries have wealth in their economy, but it doesn't translate to their people. You have to have good governance, and that's been lacking in Central Africa, and the United States can play a much more constructive role in building democratic institutions, and this committee has the oversight of that, and we should be looking at how we can advance good governance uh, in Central Africa and throughout the continent. Number two, the second thing we can do is accountability 
the impunity in Central Africa for gross violations of people's rights is what well known. You need to have a justice system that holds those that have perpetrated these acts accountable. Otherwise, future generations will just continue the violations of rights. And the United States knows how to deal with this. We know how to build up the institutions of independent judiciaries, how we can bring international attention to it. And we need to do a better job on accountability. Uh, and there are some examples in some countries where they're making some progress. Let's support that. Let's put a, a spotlight on it. Let's use it as a model for other countries. And let's demand as part of the US involvement that we insist upon accountability for those who have violated uh, the trust. And the third, Mr. Chairman, is diplomacy, and this is where America excels the best. We have the biggest spotlight in the world that we can put on problems. When America speaks, the world listens to us. And we haven't spoken enough in Africa, and certainly not enough in Central Africa. So we got to put more attention on these issues. And we need to use diplomacy more effectively than we have in the past by engaging the international community more than we have in regards to Central Africa. And that's why I come back to where I started. I'm particularly proud that we're holding this hearing today, Chairman Flake's leadership on this, Chairman Corker's leadership on this. It shows the, our committee's attention and interest to the details and to this priority. And uh, I, I thank again all those who were responsible for convening uh, this hearing. It's an extremely important hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations. And that was, Chairman, I would turn it over to Senator Markey, uh, who, I, who will uh, sit in for me as I go to the floor to defend our committee's work on North Korea. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Markey, do you want to make a statement? I'm fine at this time. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, first uh, witness on the first panel here is uh, the Honorable Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs. Uh, if you're not a stranger to this committee, testifying many times, and I always appreciate the, the briefings that I get from you and my office uh, receives uh, from your office. Second witness is the Honorable Thomas Periello, the uh, Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region, uh, and uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo at the State Department. I know you're incredibly busy. We appreciate you both being here. You know the drill. Uh, your records will be put as part of the, or your testimony as part of the record. But if you could summarize in about five minutes, that would be great. And then we'll go with questions after that. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Thank you, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Cardin, and other members of the committee for the opportunity to testify today on the many challenges and opportunities facing countries in the Central African region. I'm pleased to be here with my friend and colleague, Tom Periello, the Secretary Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region. Tom just returned from his most recent trip in the region and will provide more details on key aspects of our policy approach in the region and his own ceaseless efforts in that area. Also, we were both in Addis Ababa at the African Union last week where we engaged with partners on key issues in the region. Though it's extremely challenging, the administration continues to prioritize efforts to strengthen democratic institutions, spur economic growth, and advance peace and security, and promote opportunity and development in Burundi, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Central African Republic, and the Republic of Congo. We are deeply concerned with the ongoing political crisis in Burundi, 
during the AU summit, we were disappointed that the AU's Peace and Security Council determined that it was premature to deploy the African Prevention and Protection Mission in Burundi to Burundi. The entire AU Assembly of Heads of State later decided, and we were very uh, happy uh, with that decision, to send a delegation of five African heads of state to Bujumbura to urgently press President Nkurunziza for an inclusive dialogue. The delegation's mandate will include consultations with the government of Burundi on the deployment of the African Union uh, P Prevention and Protection Mission. In December, we decided two pro-government and two opposition individuals to our Burundi, we decided to add uh, two opposition and two government individuals to our Burundi sanctions list bringing the total number of eight individuals who have been sanctioned for engaging in actions that threaten the peace, security, and stability of the country, and we're prepared to add more as appropriate. In January, AGOA trade benefits were withdrawn from Burundi due to continued violence, and we continue to support critical health services to protect the most vulnerable populations and provide assistance to promote reconciliation and dialogue among the youth. Before turning to our concerns about the current political and security situation in Democratic Republic of Congo, I want to update you on the adoption crisis that is affecting many of your constituents. We have seen some movement. The DRC Council of Ministers recently approved and submitted the long-awaited draft adoption legislation to their parliament and committed to reconstitute in the Interministerial Commission to review the remaining cases. Now I have to say we've been down this road before and we will not be satisfied until these commitments are fulfilled. And at every opportunity, we raise this with our colleagues in the democratic government of uh, Congo. And I want to assure you and your constituents who anxiously await to bring their children home that this issue remains a priority for the department at the highest levels. We're deeply concerned by the growing political crisis in DRC President Kabila's final term in office ends in December per that country's constitution. Efforts by President Kabila's parliamentary alliance to amend the constitution or guarantee electoral delay have been vigorously resisted by the opposition as well as by permanent civil society organizations. Special Envoy Periello will go into more detail on our analysis and on our approach to the situation, but it's our assessment that a choice by President Kabila to honor the Congolese constitution and the wishes of the Congolese people to hold free, fair, transparent, and inclusive elections with President Kabila gracefully transitioning power has the greatest hope for building on the legacy of economic and social progress that he's made during his tenure in office. In Rwanda, we're deeply disappointed that President Kagame missed an opportunity to set a historic example and provide leadership to set his own country on a firm foundation of strong democratic institutions that can sustain the economic development of that country. It will be critical for Rwanda's government to allow even and even to encourage the free and unfettered expression of dissent and peaceful opposition, particularly in the run-up to local elections in 2016, presidential elections in 2017, and parliamentary elections in 2018. We're also concerned in Rwanda of credible reports that recruitment of Burundian refugees may have occurred in the past year in the camps in Rwanda. It is essential that Rwanda play a constructive role 
in addressing regional conflicts, and we welcome their public and their private commitment to support a political and not military solution to the crisis in Burundi. We will continue to cl closely monitor developments in that area. In the Central African Republic, December 30th, first round of presidential elections were peaceful with a reported 79% voter turnout. That was extraordinary for this country. And this hints at a brighter future after three years of gross insecurity, conflict, and political transition. Due to evidence of irregularities, the Carr Constitutional Court annulled the parliamentary elections, and as a result, a new round of parliamentary elections and a second round of presidential elections are scheduled to take place on the 14th of February. The United States wholeheartedly support the people of Carr in their pursuit of a peaceful and transparent transition, and we're watching closely the two leading presidential candidates as well as the losing presidential candidates who failed to make it beyond the first round to ensure that they continue to support a peaceful process. The people of Central Africa Republic deserve that. Republic of Congo, our bilateral relations are generally cordial, but have been tested in recent months over the issue of presidential term limits and repression of legitimate political opposition. While President Ngesu has not formally declared his candidacy, it is expected that he will run in the scheduled March 20 elections. We are disturbed by the arbitrary arrest of dozens of opposition supporters since October and opposition leaders who have been subject to harassment and disappointment. Just yesterday, we were shocked and even appalled by the brutal attack on retired General Mokoko, who recently declared his candidacy for president and um, his supporters were subject to those attacks as well. I know that this is not the face that the Congolese people want to project to the world. We will continue to urge the government to respect the provisions of its new constitution that guarantees the freedoms of expression and peaceful assembly and hold those accountable for the attacks that occurred yesterday. We are monitoring the run-up to the February 18th Uganda national elections, report of the police using excessive force, obstruction and dispersal of some opposition rallies, harassment of journalists contribute to a climate of fear and intimidation. It is important to underscore the need for all candidates and their campaigns to refrain from inflammatory rhetoric that could incite violence. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, let me thank you again for giving me the opportunity to discuss our extensive engagement in the region. We will continue our proactive diplomatic efforts and coordinate with members of the international community to help address the issues facing the Central African region. I hope this information that I provided to the committee is helpful. I have uh, submitted a longer version of my testimony in writing for the record, and I will look forward to your questions. Thank you. Ambassador Perriello. Uh, thank you so much, Chairman, Ranking Member, other members. I think I'd know that. Uh, thank you, Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, uh, for the opportunity to testify today and for drawing more attention to this important set of issues. I also want to thank your tremendously talented staffs for their uh, work and attention to uh, these issues on a regular basis. For the people of the Great Lakes, 2016 is a historic year. And for the United States, this year tests two decades of bipartisan investment and in stability, democracy, atrocity prevention, and shared prosperity in the region. Unfortunately, we are tracking several disconcerting regional trends of closing political space, escalating conflict, 
and leaders determined to stay in power beyond constitutional term, term limits. Yet we also see the peoples of the region as committed as ever to peace, rule of law, and building a future very different from their past. A central challenge for Rwanda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Burundi over the next year is whether their leaders will strengthen or undermine their own democratic trajectories. The stakes are high because as we've seen in Burundi, when leaders take steps that reverse democratic progress, it can risk instability and strife. In each of these countries, citizens have consistently called for democratic systems of government and put in place constitutions to ensure regular transitions of power through free, fair, and credible elections. Polling across Africa shows overwhelming support for term limits and for democratic transitions over the calcifying leadership of a few strong men. As one young person from the region said to me recently, youth like me are not putting our faith in our next leader, we're putting our faith in the promise that there will be a next leader. A much better future is within reach, but like so many of the youth across the Great Lakes region, we also see cause for concern. The deteriorating crisis in Burundi serves as a cautionary tale of the consequences of a leader clinging to power at the expense of his country's foundations for stability and social cohesion, and when opposition resorts to violence as a response. Since President Nkurunziza's controversial decision in April 2015 to run for a third term, Burundi has descended into violence and extreme fragility. By way of example, at least 87 people, but likely several hundred, were reportedly killed on December 11th and 12th by government forces in response to an opposition attack on military installations. The sustained crisis has caused more than 240,000 Burundians to flee the country. Pervasive poverty, chronic food insecurity, and reports of rising ethnic tension are exacerbating fear and fueling a looming humanitarian crisis. The UN and other credible international sources have reported serious human rights violations by Burundian security forces, including reports of mass graves, rape, and torture. We continue to believe that the best route out of this crisis is a regionally mediated dialogue amongst all Burundian stakeholders. Ugandan President Museveni <clears throat> convened the first meeting of this dialogue in Entebbe, which I attended on December 28th. <clears throat> While this was an important step that provided some deterrent pressure, on both sides, the subsequent delays in organizing a second round may be exacerbating the conflict. I spent most of January in the region urging leaders to secure a date for the next round of talks and a promise from both sides to rejoin the dialogue in good faith. In my recent meetings with President Nkurunziza and other senior Burundian officials, I emphasized that the government's refusal to allow independent monitors and media into the country to investigate horrific allegations against them can only deepen suspicions that the government has something to hide. The deployment of the full contingent of independent African Union observers and civilian protection units would signal a strong commitment to protecting the people of Burundi and resolving this crisis. I also noted that the AU monitors could have a deterrent effect, leading to reduced violence and establishment of shared facts. The State Department is working to ensure that we're doing everything we can to address the humanitarian crisis, we're coordinating closely with regional bodies and the European Union to maximize pressure on those committing violence and atrocities, including through sanctions and cuts to assistance. Our priorities remain pressuring all sides to refrain from further violence, to commit to a regionally mediated dialogue, and to support AU and UN contingency planning. For a decade, Burundi stood as a success story of post-conflict reconciliation with the signing and implementation of the Arusha Agreement. We continue to believe that the preservation of the principles of Arusha is fundamental to restoring stability and prosperity to the country. While the threat of civil war is imminent, time yet remains for leaders 
to recommit to the foundations of peace and social cohesion that could once again provide a basis for stability and progress. If Burundi is the cautionary tale, the DRC is the country that retains the best chance to apply these lessons to ensure the first peaceful democratic transfer of power in that country's history. A political crisis is building as the DRC prepares, or rather fails to prepare, for upcoming historic elections scheduled for this November. This next year will determine whether the DRC builds on the significant gains of the previous decade and its role as the most democratically open country in the region or reverses course and falls back into instability. If the DRC chooses the path taken by Burundi, the scale of human suffering could dwarf what we've seen next door. A confrontation between President Kabila and those demanding timely and credible elections in the country is not inevitable but it is becoming increasingly probable with each day that the constitutional deadline for election nears. The Kabila administration's efforts to close citizen space and postpone the start of electoral preparations raise concerns about intentions to hold power beyond the constitutional term. Fortunately, the DRC government has not yet crossed any points of no return and timely and credible elections consistent with the country's constitution are still possible. The primary barriers to holding elections by the end of 2016 are political, not technical. While logistical and technical challenges are very real and sizable, especially the need to update the voter registry, they are ultimately solvable if and when the government and others are committed to timely and credible elections. However, uncertainty is rarely the ally of stability, and the current strategy of delays risks just that kind of instability. Adding to our concerns is the systematic escalation of repression and shrinking political space as documented by the United Nations. The government has repeatedly detained opposition members and youth activists, publicly equating the opposition with enemies of the state, shutting down media outlets, and breaking up peaceful protests. While we support efforts by the AU to negotiate a peaceful constitutional path forward with the DRC government and opposition groups, we are also working to ensure that any protests are peaceful and that any peaceful protests are not met with the repressive force that destabilized Burundi a year ago. Kabila has an opportunity once again to cement his legacy in the DRC in the region, becoming not just the leader who brought his nation peace, but also the father of its constitutional democracy and a model for his peers. We continue to stress to regional and global stakeholders the distance between the massive step forward or backward that's at stake with this electoral cycle and the DRC's first peaceful democratic transition of power. Lastly, I want to discuss our multifaceted relationship with Rwanda, which takes into account Rwanda's tremendous advances in development and contributions to peacekeeping operations around the world. However, as we work with Rwanda on furthering these gains, our relationship increasingly takes into consideration our growing and longstanding concerns regarding Rwanda's democratic trajectory and human rights record. The Rwandan government's efforts to systematically silence opposition and critical voices inside the country threatens the political pluralism and citizen space that are vital to strong democratic institutions, an entrepreneurial economy, and long-term stability. Most recently, we saw these trends converge during a rushed referendum process that passed constitutional amendments that would allow President Kagame to serve as many as 17 more years in office. The Rwandan government has also restricted media and freedom of speech and harassed, detained, and allegedly even assassinated political opponents, human rights advocates, and other individuals perceived to pose a threat to the government in Rwanda and abroad. Additionally, we are concerned by reports of Rwanda engaging in destabilizing behavior outside of its border. There are credible reports of recruitment of Burundian refugees, including children at camps in Rwanda, to fight for the Burundian opposition. 
Recently, I met personally with three Burundian teenagers who claimed to have been recruited from a Rwandan refugee camp, trained as rebel fighters, and led into the DRC with fake ID cards. We've condemned these actions and called on the Rwandan government to investigate the reports and hold accountable those responsible for unlawful conduct. Finally, we continue to raise our concerns directly with the Rwandan government and look for opportunities to promote fundamental freedoms in Rwanda. We urge the government of Rwanda to enable the full and unfettered exercise of human rights, including freedoms of peaceful assembly, association, and expression as Rwanda moves towards local elections this year, presidential elections in 17, and parliamentary elections in 2018. While many trends in the region cause concern, including the closing of political space and the weakening of constitutions, we continue to see peoples in each country that want to be defined by the promise of the region's future and not the personalities and ethnic tensions of its past. They share President Obama's belief that Africa's future will be built not on strong men, but strong institutions. And we hold out hope that 2016 will be a seminal year for the people of the Great Lakes and ensuring that path forward. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you both. Uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, um, with regard to Rwanda, what role are they playing in the deteriorating situation in Burundi? You mentioned that uh, some refugees have gone into Rwanda and been trained. Some of them are going to the DRC. Are some going back into Burundi? Is that the concern? Uh, yes, sir. We have seen uh, a number of reports uh, from uh, our colleagues in the field. Uh, that suggests the Rwandan government has been involved in destabilizing activities in Burundi. Uh, we have raised uh, these concerns with the Rwandan government. We have encouraged them to play a uh, productive role uh, and not to do anything that might further uh, destabilize uh, Burundi. Uh, and uh, they have uh, they have heard our messages. Uh, we continue to hear, hear the reports and we continue to raise these. Uh, we were somewhat uh, pleased uh, recently uh, that they themselves have uh, announced that they want to see uh, a constructive dialogue moving forward. Uh, and they participated in the uh, recent meetings that were held in, uh, in Uganda. Thank you, Ambassador Periello. You say that the point of no return in DRC has not been reached in terms of the the elections coming up, um, and that the problems are more political than technical or logistic. When will we hit that point of no return? Uh, how much longer do we have when we uh, realize that these elections simply can't be held as scheduled? Well, hopefully we'll never hit a point of no return, but I think there is growing concern uh, that it could be approaching both in terms of a chronological deadline and also tactical uh, uses by the government. Uh, obviously, we've seen in Burundi and elsewhere that uh, the more a government escalates uh, repressive tactics and closing of political space, the more that can uh, calcify the opposition and, and put uh, destabilizing processes in motion. So in terms of tactically, you know, we've seen uh, just in the last few weeks um, a tremendously aggressive response uh, that included police moving into church property uh, on the anniversary of celebrating martyrs from a previous protest, uh, mainly uh, Catholic churches across Kinshasa. Uh, we've seen responses to soccer fans who were uh, chanting, uh, chanting anti-Kabila uh, slogans. Uh, so these are the sorts of things, unfortunately, that we saw escalate in Burundi and take things off the rails. So I think there's a tactical component. We've tried to communicate very clearly to the government uh, that there will be consequences uh, from the US government. Um, as allowed under Executive Order 13671 uh, for sanctions or other tools if, if that path is taken. 
In terms of the chronology, the opposition has at least claimed that they feel that uh, it's still within the timeline available. Um, there are those in the government and some technical experts who, who believe that line has already been crossed. What I think we're seeing is that the next couple of months are probably the period one way or another in which this uh, political showdown will come to a head. Um, and it's our position that regardless of what form that takes, whether it's an international dialogue or a national dialogue or some other means, uh, the important thing is that Congolese voices are respected, uh, including those voices that are dissent from the government. Uh, so I think we'll be looking both at tactical points of no return uh, as well as the chronological questions that are coming up. All right. Thank you. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, what leverage do we have in uh, these countries that we haven't used already? We've canceled MCC compacts. We've moved ahead on other things. Uh, what else is in our quiver other than uh, working with our our friends and allies uh, in the region? I, I think we've used all the levers uh, that are at our disposal, uh, and we will continue uh, to use those. I think sanctions are still uh, out there, additional sanctions. We've applied some in the case of, uh, of Burundi, uh, and we do have the opportunity, uh, if things do not improve, to apply those sanctions in uh, in DRC as well. But I think also a key component is to get uh, the neighbors, uh, the countries in the region, uh, our colleagues in the EU uh, and, and in the AU uh, to join forces with us. It's not something that we alone can accomplish. We need the, the voices and the weight and the leverage that these other entities bring to the table. And uh, that, has, that was part of our effort when we were at the AU uh, in Addis, meeting with uh, EU colleagues and with AU, uh, the AU Commission and others to push them also to join us in, in pressuring these governments to do the right thing. All right. Thank you. I'll turn now to Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Ms. Uh, last week I sent a letter to Secretary Kerry expressing deep concern about the situation in the DRC and in, uh, in, in, in particular. Uh, President Kabila's apparent attempts to delay elections and stay in power beyond the time allowed under the DRC's constitution. As I wrote my letter, President Kabila has played an important role in the DRC's path from war to relative stability, but that very progress is now threatened by his apparent intent to defy his country's constitutional foundation. This apparent attempt to subvert the Constitution appears to be part of a growing trend in which President Kabila's government feels free to defy the DRC's laws. We have seen it in the closing of political space, violent repression, closure of media outlets. We also see it in the government's general suspension of exit visas for children adopted by American families through the DRC's court system. In my letter, I stressed the need to build on your efforts to persuade President Kabila to move forward with the DRC's presidential election as required under the Constitution. I believe it is critical that we clearly and unequivocally communicate the following three points to President Kabila. Number one, he should immediately clearly and publicly state that he will not remain in power once his term ends this year. Two, provided there is verified on the ground progress towards a free and fair national election this year, including an end to the current efforts to close political space and crack down on peaceful dissent, 
the U.S. and international partners will help fund the electoral process. And three, if he fails to meet clear benchmarks required to hold a free and fair election this year, then the United States and other partners will implement targeted sanctions on President Kabila and his inner circle. Could you comment on what actions the administration is anticipating uh, in the event that President Kabila does not allow for free and fair elections? Uh, thank you, Senator Markey, and uh, the, the letter was certainly received, and we appreciate, uh, again, the attention being paid to the Great Lakes. We think this is a time, and I hear this from the Congolese people all the time, where they appreciate the sense that the eyes of the world are on this moment in the country. Uh, I think there is a lot of pride, while we certainly talk about our own uh, policy under President Obama of, of emphasizing constitutions and term limits, the reality is that this is the Congolese people's constitution. It's their decision uh, overwhelmingly to support um, term limits. It's their position uh, that they've supported their own constitution and open political space and pluralism. And I think they see this with a great deal of pride as having been something that was forged out of, a, of an incredibly brutal and difficult period of multiple wars uh, and suffering. And I think the desire right now is uh, not to be for or against any individual, but to be for a better future and better constitution. And I think there's strong appreciation that the United States government has been there to support uh, the Congolese people and that hard-fought constitutional space. Uh, as uh, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield noted, uh, we have pursued a variety of both positive and negative incentives in looking at the situation in DRC and communicated clearly and in advance. Uh, that there will be consequences um, if certain actions are taken that undermine democracy or undermine security. Uh, we've seen the U.S. government's willingness to do that in Burundi in sanctioning both members of the government for acts of repression as well as members of the opposition. In the case of DRC, we already have an executive order, as I mentioned, 13671, uh, that gives us the, uh, the ability to consider those actions. The hope is still uh, that this is going to be a historic opportunity where the government and opposition and others come together and figure out a path forward. Uh, but the stakes are so high in terms of uh, human, uh, human, potential human suffering, um, but also the inevitable regional components of dynamics in the DRC uh, that we want to do as much before this becomes a crisis uh, as we can. So we yeah, want my, my concern is that it's obvious what Kabila is doing and where he's going, and that he understand how hard the United States is going to come down on him and his cronies, on him personally, on his cronies personally, so that he is made a, a symbol of, uh, of international um, reproach, and that we have um, a, a plan in place that he clearly understands that will be imposed upon him uh, and that we will not stand uh, on the sidelines on this issue. Uh, in March of 2015, more than 400 bodies were found buried in a rural part of the country. Human Rights Watch has suggested that some of the bodies were those of individuals who uh, had died in uh, anti-government protest over a proposal to delay the 2016 presidential elections. Um, the two television channels that uh, were shut down were owned by a former governor of the province in Katanga who is known to be 
a strong political opponent uh, of the government. Uh, and so there's a clear progression with regard to what is taking place in this country. Um, there's a, a long, unfortunate history in this, uh, in this country. So is the United States committed to taking strong action uh, uh, in the event that uh, Kabila does, in fact, uh, continue down the pathway that he is progressing? May, may I? Absolutely, uh, Senator, we are. Uh, we have used every diplomatic level at the highest level uh, to impress upon President Kabila the importance of him stepping aside. Uh, it is not, uh, it, is, it is unusual that uh, he would get a call from the president. He has gotten visits from the secretary. Uh, we are encouraging him to make the right decision and it is our hope that he will make the right decision. The consequences of him making the wrong decision the horrible consequences of him making the wrong decision is the impact that this will have on, on his people and him ruling a country that is uh, imploding around him. Having that situation happen in DRC uh, is much bigger than what we've seen happening in, in Burundi. So that's the biggest consequence, but in terms of using the tools that we have to apply sanctions on him, there's no uh, hesitation uh, to do that. I think the important thing is that we have to get others in the region to support us in that effort. And that is something that we're working on as, as well. President Kabila has a legacy already. Uh, he kept this country relatively uh, peaceful over uh, uh, the past few years. Uh, that legacy is going to be lost. Uh, his reputation will be lost if he does not uh, gracefully leave power and uh, have his country continue to proceed down the road of democracy. Thank you. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank both of you for your tireless effort in this area. I, I, uh, Ambassador, I want to go back and talk about uh, the adoption issue briefly, if I could, just to get a little more elaboration. Uh, as you said in your testimony, there are about 400 families waiting for these children, and, and in, your, in your testimony, you even document that some of these children have actually died waiting for uh, this process to uh, to be taken care of, and, and then today, dozens need medical attention. I understand the parliamentary action that was taken, and uh, that is encouraging, um, as well as the reconstruction of this interministerial commission to review these cases. We kind, as you said, we kind of heard this before. So, what can we do? Um, I, I know you're doing everything you can individually. I've seen that. What, what else can we do to help the release of these uh, these children? Uh, we're using every tool that we have in our toolbox, uh, including uh, the voices from, uh, from this chamber uh, to encourage the government to do the right thing. Uh, and we were encouraged when they allowed some children to leave uh, late last year. Uh, and we're hopeful that they will make the, the right decision to move. I think they are somewhat surprised about how um, important this issue is to us and how uh, much of a priority this is to us. I don't start a meeting with the DRC government without starting on the adoption issue. As much as this uh, issue of elections are high on our agenda, we start with the adoption issue. And they express surprise at that. And we have to keep the, the pressure on. And I think they are feeling, feeling the pressure. Uh, so again, I, I think that we don't, we don't want to do anything that uh, will lead to, to harm. Uh, 
we want to keep impressing upon them for human rights and just for humanitarian reasons. They need to allow these children to, to join their families. So uh, again, I, I will keep the pressure on. I ask that you as, as a body uh, keep that pressure on and each time we get one of those uh, children uh, reunited with their families, uh, we have to uh, uh, thank them, uh, but keep the pressure on until we get all of them uh, released. Two have died, and we don't want to see any more die. Thank you. Mr. Periello, um, obviously democratic governance is at issue in this part of the world, as you mentioned in your testimony. Um, looking at some of these countries, Burundi, DRC, Rwanda, Uganda, um, they haven't seen, uh, they really haven't experienced a democratic uh, transfer of power. And so uh, I see the administration's response to um, President Kagame in R Rwanda, um, his direct intervention there. We just heard about his telephone call with Kabila. And yet uh, Nguesa, uh, Ngeso has not had that kind of direct involvement. So I, I guess what I'm looking for is uh, where are we in terms of our consistent approach with all of these guys in terms of, of supporting uh, improved governance. I mean, I hope they understand how important that is to economic development as well as the social development of those countries. So what are we doing to maintain a consistent pressure on all of these leaders to adhere to true government uh, governance principles that, um, that they have committed to in the past? But when it comes time at the end of the term, the two terms, uh, they seem to, to have a better idea. So uh, I think it's an incredibly important question, and I, I want to echo what the ranking member said before he had to go about the importance of, of investments in governance, particularly in this area. And I think it's something where we have many partners on the ground in civil society and in many cases within governments themselves who actually want to do the difficult work uh, of governing well. I want to make one comment about the adoptions thing before moving on, which is just to reiterate uh, how dedicated Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield and others have been. While many of us, it's not our primary job to work on this issue, they have made clear that this is an all-team effort. Uh, and so all of us have been asked to pitch in on this, which we are glad to do given uh, the stakes for these, uh, these children. Um, and I just want to commend the families as well, most of whom have gone out of their way to be uh, incredibly patient and, and uh, very engaged with all of us. And I think it's been just a, an unbelievable human experience to, to witness that uh, and what they've gone through. On the governance issue, you know, I think uh, we have a, the President Obama um, set a very clear line in the sand in his ADA speech about the importance of constitutions and of term limits. I think it's widely known that it was the largest applause line of that speech and polling across Africa has uh, reinforced the idea that this is a widely popular notion among the African people, even though it may not have the same level of popularity among the African leaders uh, themselves. Um, this is particularly popular uh, and important as a policy with the African uh, youth, which represent in many cases 50% or more of populations around the continent. Um, this is not a situation where we can simply declare it so, uh, but I think we can be the strongest force possible for making the case of why constitutions matter. I think in a situation like uh, Rwanda, you've seen them get many indicators uh, up to speed that should suggest foreign direct investment would follow, but you haven't actually seen FDI follow in that country, and one of the issues raised by the private sector repeatedly is concerns about closed political space and the instability that inevitably comes uh, with that set of policies. Uh, we believe Burundi, in many ways, uh, is a tragedy, uh, but it is also something that has proven the point of the policy to begin with, uh, which is that constitutions matter. 
Um, constitutions matter and people worked hard for this. And I think that's, again, one of the things that's been most inspiring for me in this job is the fact that we are reinforcing uh, the voices of people around the region who really do want to put these periods of bad governance, of ethnic conflict and other conflict behind them. Uh, so investments in governance are, are well spent. I think where we can use both positive and negative incentives uh, to try to encourage governments to do the difficult work uh, to move in the right direction we can. And again, while we're very concerned about the trends, uh, we don't believe that this is a lost cause. Uh, the people of Burundi spent a decade uh, looking at post-ethnic, uh, post-conflict reconstruction, including along ethnic lines. The military, the investment in that, in the military, for example, showed a degree of professionalism and inter-ethnic cooperation that has probably been one of the factors that has kept Burundi from getting far worse. We've seen the same thing in faith communities and civil society groups. So while it's hard to prove a negative, the fact is I think those investments of the last decade are probably one of the things that has kept things from moving back to a situation in the 90s. So we want to build on that success at the same time we try to check uh, and check impunity, as, uh, as Senator Cardin mentioned, um, for those who are trying to threaten that. I'm out of time. Let me just ask both of you real quick, just an off-the-wall question. Of all the aid that comes into the Lake Region in Africa, what percentage is coming from the United States today, ballpark? I know nobody, I've asked for that number and we really don't have a, a precise way to get at that number, but um, Ambassador? I, I don't know that figure, but we will get back to, to okay, you with thank an you. answer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Flake, uh, Ranking Member Markey, thank you, uh, Madam Assistant Secretary and um, Ambassador Periello, Special Envoy Periello. Uh, appreciate your testimony today. Let me just briefly lay out three or four questions, and then if you'd take the remainder of the time to answer them as you will. Um, I'm interested in following up on two countries that both of you referenced, but that haven't been the focus of our discussion uh, so much so far. Uh, Uganda in particular, what role um, has their upcoming elections uh, in some of the um, oppression or closing space for civil society in Uganda, what role has that played uh, in the AAC's efforts to negotiate a political agreement uh, in Burundi? Talk about the Central African Republic. Uh, there are so many other difficult, uh, important developments in the region, obviously in Burundi and DRC, that sometimes car gets uh, left behind, and I'd be interested in hearing uh, how you see uh, our role in helping the Central African Republic move uh, towards the upcoming elections. Third, I'd be interested in the Atrocities Prevention Board, um, something that was formed uh, as a lesson learned after the Rwandan genocide of 20 years ago, um, and what role uh, it has played uh, in making sure that appropriate attention is being paid uh, to the conditions in Burundi and the potential challenges in DRC. Um, and then last, uh, Special Envoy Pariello, Congressman, you, you referenced that AU speech uh, by President Obama. I was present for it, and you could hear and feel in the room uh, the reaction by hundreds uh, of Africans, and I've since heard it repeated many times. You intimated what I think is the reality on the ground, that there's a big gap between what some national leaders are doing and what the vast majority of their population hopes for in terms of transparency, uh, an end to impunity, uh, and genuine democracy. Uh, what are we doing to help um, accelerate um, the capabilities of civil society to give voice uh, to citizens around the region? Earlier in our business meeting, we passed a resolution celebrating the Tunisian Quartet uh, and the progress in Tunisia, which was the country that really gave birth to the Arab Spring. Um, what role do you see for the United States, if any, uh, in using modern technology and in using um, the tools of democracy and uh, governance uh, promotion uh, to accelerate the ability of the average African to have their concerns heard uh, in transparency, anti-corruption, and the promotion of democracy? 
Um, if you'd use the remaining five minutes to answer any of those four questions, I'd be grateful. Thank you. Let me start, and then I'll, I'll turn to my colleague. On Uganda, uh, everybody's watching uh, the situation in Uganda. Uh, President uh, Museveni has been there almost three decades. Uh, there are no term limits. That was changed sometime around 2005. Uh, and he has said very clearly that he, that he does not believe in term limits. Uh, but the true mark of, of a leader is someone who can establish the environment that allows for transition and that they're comfortable enough in their leadership that they can step aside and let uh, others follow in their footsteps or maybe uh, set a new path uh, for, uh, for leadership. And so countries are watching, other countries in, in the region are watching Uganda and watching what uh, happens with that election. Right now, what we, we're hoping and praying for in Uganda is a free and fair and, and transparent process. And uh, we will keep pressing uh, the issue of term limits and, and transitions uh, in this country, as well as other countries that may have parliamentary systems that don't uh, 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 encourage term limits, uh, to ensure that they set a standard and they uh, set a, a model for other countries to follow. And that's the message that we, we have conveyed. Uh, you asked what, uh, what we might do to help CAR. Uh, we actually have a historic opportunity in Central Africa Republic. Those elections in December uh, were much better than anyone expected uh, of this country. If you'd asked us two years ago when I started this job if we would have had elections, presidential elections in CAR uh, that were not uh, violent, I don't think any of us could have said with any uh, confidence that we expected that to, to happen. Uh, they're moving forward with the elections on the 14th, um, and they do actually genuinely have a money problem. Uh, they didn't delay uh, because of the money problem, uh, but they do have issues requiring uh, additional assistance. And we've scraped the bottom of the mayonnaise draw, jar several times uh, to find money to support CAR, and we'll keep doing that. But I think we have a lot to be proud of because, in fact, our uh, Atrocities Prevention Board, on to your next question, working on, on CAR and making sure we put the right people in place and we raised our voices early. Uh, we were pushing every lever we had to ensure that the atrocities that we saw happening in CAR and the ones that we were projecting might happen didn't, didn't happen. And I think we, we have a success story. Still, a lot of people died, uh, but more could have died had we not been as proactive as we were. And I would say the same thing on Burundi. In December, we were pulling out all the stops because we were getting signals that things were going to turn really, really bad in Burundi. The Atrocity Prevention Board had been meeting on, on the situation in Burundi and what kinds of tools we could use to ensure that, uh, that uh, atrocities did not happen. And uh, I think uh, if there's any uh, silver lining in the case of Burundi, while people have been killed, we've not seen the mass atrocities that we expected uh, could happen because we did have those tools in place. Uh, just whipping through those, uh, yes, we feel like there has not been as much urgency in moving the uh, Burundi talks forward as possible, and we imagine that the political elections in Uganda may be a factor in that. 
As I've said before, top priority for us was to secure a date for the second round of talks, and I have thus far failed in that regard. It's incredibly important uh, that the Ugandans, the EAC, and others uh, get that on the schedule because we believe there's deterrent value to having talks and showing that that remains a credible option um, uh, for, for resolving the situation there. The Atrocity Prevention Board, uh, I think the proof is in the fact that more people are asking for it. Uh, Ambassador Liberi has talked about how useful it was in the Burundi case in such a way that Ambassador Swan in Kinshasa has asked it to uh, look at and be engaged on DRC. So from a free market perspective, it's, I think, providing a product that is of interest to those who are most on the ground and looking at this, which is not to say we won't continue to refine it. Uh, I think where uh, more leverage and tools and financing and other things can come behind the policy recommendations, obviously, uh, that will continue uh, to grow. Uh, on the importance of, of supporting civil society, clearly this is a place where I think we have both uh, a role in direct investment and support, uh, as well as uh, I think continuing to shine a light on these issues. Uh, there really is a very vibrant civil society in DRC, and there was up until a year ago in Burundi. Um, I, I had a chance to meet with Pierre Clave and Bunipa, the most uh, well-known and courageous human rights activist in Burundi, just days before he was shot through the head. Uh, he did manage to survive that assassination attempt, but pretty much all independent media and all independent civil society groups have been uh, uh, either uh, captured or run out of Burundi, and it's a, it's a huge setback. And I can tell you it's, it's interesting to see how civil society, you mentioned the Tunisia case, continues to evolve, where governments figured out, have figured out more and more how to surveil and monitor the old NGOs uh, that have these very strict structures. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see just how scared the DRC government uh, is of these groups like Falimbi and Lucha, these relatively small groups, but like uh, organiz movement organizations here that are not formal NGOs, but they're movements that use new technology, uh, are things that are much harder, I think, for governments to sort of control and monitor, and that's certainly been a factor in these areas. But you see tremendous vibrancy, particularly from youth, in these areas. And while we certainly can be supportive of that, the reality is it comes organically from within. And uh, as you saw with these soccer cheers uh, in stadium after stadium, these are, uh, these are things that are just emerging from the people who may be for Kabila or against Kabila, but they're definitely for their constitution and they're definitely for uh, uh, elections and stability. Great. Thank you. Thank Senator, you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. Uh, Secretary Thomas Greenfield, I want to ask a question. I think the African Union created something called Matabu. Is that right? An intervention force? Maprobu. Yes. Maprobu. For to go in, to tentatively go into Burundi, but Burundi rejected that. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the African Union proposed it uh, and uh, recommended it, and they uh, were making preparations, and the Burundi government indicated that they would not allow uh, uh, this force to come into Burundi. Uh, I don't think it's off the table yet. Uh, we have encouraged the government in our meetings with the foreign minister in, uh, in Addis, as well as the special envoys meetings uh, with, the, uh, with the president. We've told them this is in their interest. It's in their interest because it provides protection to their people and that it's their responsibility to ensure that their people are protected. There's a high-level delegation of African heads of state, uh, President Macky Sall of Senegal, uh, the president of Mauritania, uh, uh, President Aziz, uh, President Bongo from Gabon, and uh, the president of uh, Ethiopia, and I can't remember who the fifth one is, uh, are going to, uh, to Burundi. 
to encourage uh, the president to reconsider, uh, to push him on dialogue, and hopefully we'll see something positive come out of that. Well, that leads me to my follow-up question on that subject. If, in fact, it's still on the table to possibly have that take place, but if they ultimately reject it, are there contingency plans either with the AU or with the UN to go into Burundi to try and avoid a, a, a tragedy? Uh, there have been discussions with the UN, uh, and they have been part of, uh, uh, of these uh, discussions with the AU. As you know, the Security Council uh, delegation went into Burundi uh, in December, and they had meetings with Nkurunziza, so I know that Burundi is high on the agenda of the Security Council. Uh, their uh, visit there uh, galvanized uh, support uh, within the UN to find a solution. So I, I think it is uh, on, on, on their plate as well. Well, given that Ambassador Samantha Power is sort of an expert in that part of the world and has written pretty much on that, we might get her to help us with that. She's been extraordinarily helpful and, uh, and extraordinarily proactive in, in dealing with this situation. I've always been a fan of what uh, President Kagame did when he wasn't president to end the genocide in, in Rwanda and come down out of the hills and reestablish re some sense of governance and a, a rather vibrant economy and a workforce and involve women in the workforce. He did a lot of great things. But I know he, I noticed now he's extending his presidency beyond the intended time period and I think from time to time has meddled in his borders with M23 in the Congo and other things like that. Is he an overall stabilizing force, or is he, is he going the other way? Uh, I, too, agree uh, with your early assessment of, uh, of uh, President Kagame. He has a huge legacy that uh, will uh, be tarnished and diminished uh, if he stays in power. Uh, beyond, um, uh, well, he's changed the Constitution, so it's not beyond the constitutional uh, limit, but if he stays in power uh, for a third term, having uh, changed the Constitution. So uh, that legacy, I think, is, is important. Uh, there are people who believe that he is a destabilizing force in the region. Uh, we have seen the reports of uh, his uh, involvement or his country's involvement uh, with, uh, uh, within Burundi, and particularly as it relates to recruiting and training of refugees inside the borders of Rwanda. Uh, the M23 uh, situation clearly was an example of uh, activities outside the region. Uh, again, we're continuing to press him to honor his own legacy uh, and keep uh, Rwanda on the, on the positive track that we all hope Rwanda uh, remains on in the future. My only other comment would be in my travels in Africa, I've met a lot of the leaders. Uh, the late Jonathan Mills in Ghana was a great president. He term limited himself and, and that country went into relative prosperity and stability and governance. And President Yayi of Benin has term limited himself and I think this is his last year in the presidency and there'll be new elections. It seems like to me there are some good examples of where when countries have gone to a term limit, and not had an internal presidency, they have bowed much better than those that have kept an internal presidency and not gone to a more democratic society. Uh, that's our whole point, and we do have some positive examples. Uh, Senegal, uh, Senegal is doing actually the opposite. President Macky Sall is proposing to decrease uh, the term limit from seven to five. They have a two term limit of, of seven years each, and he's actually proposing that it be decreased. Uh, Ghana has a long history of, uh, of, uh, of turnovers in, in government. And then I think the amazing example of Nigeria this past year, 
uh, with a, a, a relatively good election that led to a changeover, a peaceful changeover in power. Burkina Faso with a bit of uh, tension and stress. Burkina Faso uh, with a very vibrant civil society was able to have the voices of the people heard. So we have some positive examples that these governments uh, in Central Africa can look at outside of their, their region where uh, we've seen the positive impact of uh, transition and uh, democracy that is stable. Thank you both for your service. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses for your great service, and it's a special treat to see my friend uh, Tom Perriello here, who is a real stellar Virginia public servant who's done great work in diplomacy and human rights pre a congressional career and now post a congressional career, and we're really proud of you, Tom. It's good to see you across a, across a witness table. Um, so just a couple of things, and I, and I will say I always, I love these hearings and I love this committee, one of the things I love is, sort of I love and I don't love, I focus on a couple of areas of the world, the Middle East and Latin America, and I'm, I just feel less fluent on issues surrounding Africa, Central Africa, so a hearing like this is a great opportunity for me to climb the learning curve, so these will be some basic ones. The elections in the Central African Republic, so um, Secretary uh, Thomas Greenfield, you talked about the December first round being probably much better than anybody would have reasonably expected. Uh, certainly, maybe from 2013, it's been a, a challenging time. The runoffs, I guess, were secondary runoffs were originally scheduled for January and then postponed, but they're now scheduled uh, for the 14th. Um, how, what, what's your prediction? Have we been, we and others been providing assistance so that those runoff elections will be strong? And then I know there's the question about whether this succeeding government will be stronger or weaker than the transitional and what, what support can we provide uh, following the elections? Uh, we're, we're watching uh, these elections, but we're not just watching. We've been very, very supportive of uh, ensuring that the elections move forward. Uh, the decision to delay the elections for a few weeks was disappointing, but understandable, uh, given the capacity of, uh, of this government. Uh, but we really do have to give this transitional government uh, a huge hand of applause. Uh, President Samba Panza has uh, led under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And I think uh, as we watch what happens on the 14th, that she will be uh, forever remembered for uh, trans uh, transitioning uh, this very difficult uh, country into what will be a stable, uh, democratically elected government. Uh, we have to stay with them, however, uh, and and ensure that they stay on the same on the right path. Uh, so again, we've made it very very clear to uh, to all in DRC that we are there for them. We are there for the people, and we want to see uh, this country eventually become uh, a stable country. But again, I just think we have a lot to be proud of, but more than anything, they have a lot to be proud of because this country was imploding in December of uh, 2013, yeah. and none of us could even envision that two years later they would have an election that uh, was relatively peaceful. From Now from CAR to DRC, um, President Kabila has this national dialogue that's going that I guess has been supported by the African Union um, I don't know that the United States has expressed a position about it or not, but I know opposition within the country feel like, what do we need a national dialogue for? The Constitution is really clear about what the electoral processes should be. Um, 
Educate me a little bit about the role of the African Union. I mean, is the, is the support for the, is it that clear in DRC that, yeah, the, the electoral processes are clear and the national dialogue is just kind of a delaying tactic? And if so, why would the African Union support it? I, I just am not fluent enough about the, that, that, inter, uh, that regional organization. <clears throat> Thank you and thanks for the, the kind words. I've likened the national dialogue debate so far to trying to broker a, a house sale between someone who doesn't want to sell their house and someone who doesn't want to buy a house. <laughs> um, and I think to the extent that there is not actually a common goal to get to timely, credible elections, uh, then this is really mainly about political power. I think what the African Union has been trying to figure out, and we think it's very constructive, is whether there's actually space to present a credible dialogue to try to uh, broker some of these conversations. As you noted, uh, while there has been a history of dialogue in the country uh, playing a role at historic moments, that has generally been to end 40 years of dictatorship or to end a civil war, and part of the goal of constitutions, as you know as a constitutional scholar, uh, is to move beyond those debates and have the stability of knowing certain questions have been settled. There are certainly very real technical questions about voter registry, et cetera, uh, but again, uh, where the political will is there to solve those problems, we've seen DRC solve them before. Um, so we, uh, throughout this job actually, I just want to say one of the, the things that's exceeded expectations has been the cooperation with both the European Union and the African Union on a number of issues, both in Burundi and DRC. Uh, so former Prime Minister Kojo has been asked to look at this. He's not yet presented, I think, his final recommendations to the African Union Secretariat. Um, but uh, in meetings with him uh, directly and conversations indirectly, I think that there's a, there's a clear-eyed sense of understanding what the challenges are, and I think there's a goal on all sides that if we can figure out a way through this political impasse uh, with the least risk to instability, that's a good thing. Uh, but ultimately, if one side is unwilling and uninterested to actually negotiate in good faith about how to, uh, to meet that constitutional deadline, then that's going to be a very difficult situation. So uh, our sense is it, it can only be helpful for them to be looking at the problem, um, and uh, we, will, we will look forward to seeing what recommendations they make. I wanted to ask a question about just a, a underlying an exclamation point, the importance of the adoption issue, which I know you've testified to in the earlier questions about it. Some of the children waiting for adoption uh, are Virginians. And it's my sense there was recently a CODEL led by Chairman Royce in the House uh, over to talk about this issue. And it was my sense that they can't even come back. They kind of return without a great deal of optimism about a solution in the near term. And I, I wonder, each of you, especially Secretary Thomas Greenfield, what's your optimism level about getting to some kind of a breakthrough on this? I have a great weakness, and that is that I always remain optimistic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, good. Uh, some of uh, the children were released in, in December, and I thought that was a good sign. Uh, the fact that the government has not categorically said no we're not going to allow any more children is another sign of, of optimism. And the fact that uh, this uh, commission, ministerial, interministerial commission has now been constituted, I think is, is an additional sign. It all remains uh, to, to be seen, uh, but I do think we have to continue to push because once we lose the optimism, there's no reason to push anymore. So we really have to uh, continue to uh, stay engaged with the government on this, uh, to provide opportunities for the government to see that these children are going to good homes, and that's something that we have proposed to them. 
uh, having uh, the families there and seeing how loving the families are, I think is a huge, huge message uh, to the government and that these children uh, will be uh, brought into uh, a more prosperous and, and better life uh, if they're allowed to uh, join their families here in the United States. So that's the message that we continue to, to give to the government and continue to say that this is an important issue for us. It's a, it's, it's a core issue, it's a high priority for us. So I uh, remain internally, eternally hopeful that we will eventually uh, get all of the children who are currently waiting. Mr. Chair, uh, could I ask one more follow-up question? I'm over my time, but just on that, it, what is your assessment sort of of the motive behind all this? So is it, you know, I can, I can imagine a lot of different motives. Um, a legitimate concern about the safety of the children in homes here. A concern, I've talked to the President of Honduras about this, the, the idea of a brain drain is always something, you know, losing people to somewhere else that isn't, and especially the younger generation, that has a psychological component to it that can be unpleasant. Um, but I can also see it being used as sort of a gaming uh, issue with the United States that might want to be encouraging them to do certain things and they know that this matters deeply to a number of people and they kind of use it as a bargaining chip. So how would you assess that? Uh, I would say all of the above. Uh, they have expressed concerns about whether the uh, children are, are safe and well cared for in, in the U.S. And I think we have um, uh, tried to address that uh, by letting them see uh, the conditions of, of, of children. And I think the uh, DRC ambassador who's here in, in Washington and I think is here in the room has been part of that process of, uh, of uh, assuring the government that uh, these children are being brought to, uh, to safe homes. Uh, there are issues of corruption that I think we have to certainly uh, make the government aware of, but also be conscious of our, ourselves, the extent to which uh, parents are being manipulated uh, in this mm -hmm. process. Um, and I think all of the things you mentioned are, are, are possibilities, and we have to try to address all those concerns. Right. Let me just yeah. note on the, the second part of that. On the first part of that, I, th I think we do have to distinguish, though, between things that are absolutely legitimate reasons to um, change an adoption law uh, or you know make a decision about that versus a decision about children who've been already legally adopted not getting an exit visa. So I think we all accept that there's a re reasonable set of very complicated issues at play here, but I think that's what made this a particularly complicated thing. But I will speak uh, to the second motive, which is at least thus far there has certainly been no attempt to do horse trading or anything else uh, on the lives of these kids, and I think the government is honorable enough and smart enough not to try to do that. Uh, so I know some people have posited that, but as someone who's very involved in the mm -hmm. broader set of political questions, we have not seen any, uh, any effort to bring those issues together. Good, good. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Cardin. Well, again, I, as I said in my opening comments, uh, I'm very concerned about this reason. Secretary Thomas Greenfield, thank you for your, your service. I want to get your assessment in regards to the resources that we are putting in to help develop uh, democratic institutions in Central Africa. If my numbers are, are right, in the Democracy and government's, Governance Funds, it's about $30 million. That amounts to about 25 cents per, per person. Uh, is that enough? I know there's more than money involved here, don't get me wrong, but clearly our development assistance is a critical part of our overall strategy, as we all know. And uh, it just, knowing the 
extent of the challenge in that region, are we doing enough? Uh, sir, thank you for that question and your comments early on were music to my ears. Uh, I have said uh, since I started this job that we have to put our money where our mouth is. If our highest priority is democracy and governance and good elections and free and fair and transparent elections, those things cost money. And if you look at our budget, when you look at the sliver of the pie that goes toward democracy and governance, it doesn't suggest that this is the highest priority for us. Uh, so we are constantly uh, robbing from other resources when we can to support these efforts. We know when we support civil society, uh, when we support electoral commission capacity building, we have good elections. Nigeria was one of those examples. We did put money into uh, that over a number of years into that electoral commission and into building the capacity of civil society, including training uh, election observers. We're not gonna send 3,000 election observers to Nigeria. Those election observers were Nigerians who were trained uh, through resources that we and others provided. Uh, so it's really important that we find the funding to support these efforts. And if we don't find the funding, we see the consequences of that. Uh, DR, I, I mentioned when you were not in the room that Central Africa Republic elections were delayed, and they were delayed for legitimate reasons. Uh, that government didn't have the money or the capacity to carry out uh, these elections. Uh, and we were pressed to find additional sources of funding to, to support them. And in many cases, you know, people come to us to say, we need you to send election observers. Your election observers really make a difference. Little countries like Comores, when I was there recently, begged us to send election observers. They actually have pretty good elections. Their president is stepping aside, but he wanted to have election observers, and we were able to find a few pennies uh, to support sending a, a team of election observers there. So this is really a key priority for us, and I very much appreciate your support uh, and uh, your encouragement in that area. Thank you. I'm gonna mention my other area I mentioned earlier. I find that there's certainly great intentions in the State Department on dealing with atrocities, and uh, tr first and foremost, trying to prevent atrocities and then uh, recognizing that by holding people accountable, it's an indication to future uh, circumstances that if you act uh, with impunity, you're not gonna be treated, uh, well, you're, you're gonna be held accountable for your actions. Uh, but then as you start to get into political solutions, the accountability sections, uh, areas seem to be put on the side. They seem to be a little bit too difficult, they're too personal, and when you're trying to get people to lay down their arms or to come to the negotiating table, the first thing they want is immunity from all their previous activities. And that cannot be permitted. Uh, so I wanna know uh, what you're doing and what we need to do to make sure that the accountability aspects are always uh, in uh, active consideration as we look for political uh, solutions to the conflicts that exist in Central Africa. Let me start it just by saying that we never put uh, accountability on the sidelines. Uh, but I know, to, to be honest and realistic, that as these uh, political um, uh, negotiations are taking place between opposition and, and ruling parties, they have negotiations on their side that sometimes may 
be distasteful to us, uh, but may lead to a situation where violence ends more quickly than the violence might have ended uh, because the person who's holding on to power for dear life decides to step aside because they got a guarantee of, uh, of immunity. Uh, and it's our hope, sometimes it may take years to hold people accountable, uh, but uh, it comes back around so that they are held accountable. Uh, we know that in Africa, the ICC is feared uh, because the ICC has been a mechanism uh, for holding people accountable. Uh, governments within internally have a hard time doing it. So that's why it's important to have these outside mechanisms that can be used. Uh, as, as a threat, but also uh, as a tool to hold people accountable. And we do have cases where people have been held accountable. And, and, and I agree with that. I, I, there have been a couple bright spots uh, in that. And, and what I would urge you to do, working with us and working with our friends in the State Department on Human Rights, that we showcase those areas and use them as models in other conflict zones as they work towards resolution. I also agree with a comment you made that it may not be immediate, but we'll get to these individuals. And our first priorities are usually to end conflicts, to end the killings. But there's one thing to end the killings and say there'll be a second day. It's another thing to end the killings and say we're never gonna have a second day. So I just urge you to use your position, working with us, to make it clear that U.S. will not allow for the type of actions to go unaccountable. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was just going to reinforce that. I think this was something actually President Museveni spoke to at the launch of the Burundi talks, where he uh, endorsed the idea of provisional immunity during the talks themselves, but that accountability for all sides should be part of the uh, conversation during the M23 negotiations uh, by my predecessor and working with Linda and others. Uh, this was actually something where immunity was not offered, at least for war crimes at the end of that. Uh, we've seen in country after country, like the term limit issue, that often immunity is something that is very much favored by elites, but not by the peoples of these countries, and that breaking that uh, 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 trend is important. And the last thing I'll just mention is uh, to reinforce Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield that the threat and perception of ICC indictments is something we've seen uh, play a very real um, and de-escalatory uh, process in Burundi uh, when the Senate President's uh, very incendiary speech was leaked, uh, and there was a public statement made from the ICC prosecutor. Uh, I was uh, dispatched by the White House to Burundi uh, that day as things were uh, looking very rough, and I can tell you every single uh, senior official in the Burundian government that I met with brought up uh, that press release. So I think this is something where, uh, again, it's not that a one-size-fits-all, but it is part of the conversation here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you both for your testimony. Um, the hearing record will remain open for, for a bit, and so uh, if you could respond in a timely manner for uh, the questions that may come. And uh, with that, we'll uh, dismiss the first panel with our thanks and invite the second panel to come up. So thank you, Ambassador and Ambassador.
thank you. We'll welcome our second uh, panel here. The Honorable Roger A. Meese, former U.S. Ambassador to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and former United Nations Special Representative uh, for the DRC. Uh, Sarah Margon is the uh, Washington Director of Human Rights Watch, an expert on uh, conflict prevention, humanitarian relief, and the rule of law. As I said to the first panel, thank you for being here, and your full statements are included in the record. If you could summarize your statements in about five minutes, it would be appreciated. And uh, Ambassador Meese, thank you. Chairman Flake, members of the committee, thank you very much for this hearing, and thank you for affording me this opportunity to speak to these important issues. I had the honor of appearing before this committee uh, roughly two years ago, uh, talking about the DRC and Great Lakes. I regret to say that in the intervening two years, in my view, there has been a general degradation in conditions across the region. The common elements uh, in all cases are institutional weaknesses and governance problems that have been discussed already. The appalling violence reported out of Burundi highlights in particular the problem of presidential term extensions, but it is also the fact that such extensions and the apparent or potential situation of presidents for life uh, tend to be the rule, not the exception in the area, as has been reflected in comments already. Uh, to cite specific examples, the presidents of Angola and Uganda have over 30 years in power with, in my view, very little sign of any change likely soon. There have been recent extensions of constitutional presidential term limits in Congo Brazzaville, the Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi, none of which I think can be reasonably described as reflecting valid democratic processes. And in the DRC, although President Kabila has not issued a formal statement and there has not been a change to the constitution, at least yet, but various actions and lack of needed actions related to election processes are making it increasingly clear to me that a legitimate democratic election cannot be held this year, implying, of course, a de facto extension of the presidential term as well. In all cases, these actions have been accompanied by a repression of dissent and centralization of power, pointing to incre increasing authoritarianism, which is already too pronounced in the area. This is obviously not a formula for long-term stability. It feeds underlying tensions, even if those are temporarily suppressed, and increases the risk and threats of unrest or future explosions of violence, as we have too often seen in the past. I certainly welcome and support statements by US government and other governments critical of these actions, but I don't think statements are enough. To my knowledge, the only sanctions or aid, suspensions of aid related to this area are those in Burundi. But I believe that we need consistent policies and actions applied across the region to all if we are to have a credible position and increase the pressure on governments moving in the wrong direction. I believe we should always consider sanctions, visa restrictions, and other concrete actions as a part of our policy related to governance. Coordination with other governments is obviously important to magnify the impact of any actions taken. But it is also important, I think, to emphasize that this all should be part of a larger comprehensive strategy in democracy and governance, focusing on strengthening institutions, including media, parliamentary processes and oversight, civil society, and other key aspects. 
as well as programs to increase economic opportunity, which are important for populations in the region, which undermine the appeal of militias and radical groups. These are all interrelated and feed each other. It is also true these are all longer-term efforts. There is no quick, short-term fix. Democracy, in my view, cannot simply be imported from outside. It must be built on an indigenous base reflecting local realities, and that is done through these governance programs. I believe we need more attention and resources devoted to these and sustain these kinds of programs and sustain those. These are not short-term. Finally, I would just mention that any strategy must also include the means to establish basic security conditions as needed and relevant to the situation. This is most often done through UN and Africa Union peacekeeping operations. But in my experience, these operations are based on a post-conflict paradigm, with the notable exception of the Intervention Brigade, part of MONUSCO in the DRC, and they do not necessarily have the tools and authorities needed for the active conflict environments in dealing with those. All of these elements and all specific actions, of course, must obviously be carefully tailored to local situations and based on a very sound understanding of local social political realities. This is a brief summary of my views. I have uh, submitted uh, written testimony already uh, that expands on these in greater detail and I hope uh, is clear. Thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Ms. Margon. Thank you, Chairman Flake, other members of the committee. Thank you for holding this important and timely hearing. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to testify on behalf of Human Rights Watch. As you know and has been discussed, countries in Central Africa are undergoing political crises. Some of the tactics used to arrest power are different than in the past where military coups and other blatant uses of force were employed to take or maintain power. Now, however, many leaders in the region are attempting to cling to power by revising constitutional term limits and holding elections that are so imbalanced and restricted that only an incumbent leader is likely to emerge victorious. The suppression of rights is frequently part of a cadre of tools used to reverse progress on good governance, all the while creating a pretext to remain in power in perpetuity. Sometimes it is security forces employing lethal force in response to peaceful demonstrations. Sometimes it is government officials detaining activists or opposition party members. Sometimes it is obstructing media, curtailing civil society organizations from covering civil sensitive issues. Often it is all of the above together, along with threats or physical assaults. This is what I'll discuss today with a focus on DRC and Uganda, but I'm also happy to talk about Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia, Central African Republic during the Q&A. When Kabila's government attempted to change the electoral law in January 2015 to extend his term in office, there were mass protests in the country that forced him to back down and look for other ways to stay in power. The situation, as discussed, has not yet been resolved. But meanwhile, as the election ambiguity has developed, we have seen the government increasingly resort to violent acts of repression, particularly against those who are opposed to Kabila's efforts. Government officials have clamped down on activists and political opponents, in, in some cases arbitrarily arresting them, throwing them in jail. Security forces have responded to peaceful demonstrations with excessive force. Government officials have blocked free speech by shutting down media outlets, text messaging services, and the internet in an attempt to stop protest leaders from communicating with each other and to block the opposition movement from building momentum. As was discussed earlier, Congo is at a historic crossroads, and we see no signs of this situation abating, especially as nationwide mobilization is set for early next week. 
In Uganda, they are set to hold elections, both parliamentary and presidential, next week on February 18th. The current president, Yari Museveni, has been in office for 30 years, and he shows no sign of relinquishing power. He's basically set the tone for what we are seeing more widely throughout Central Africa. Over the last decade, Museveni has repeatedly created an uneven campaigning environment by silencing dissenting voices, using public funds unlawfully for his own campaigns, emboldening the police to act in aggressive and partisan manners, and threatening media outlets for airing opposition views. Basic rights are often under siege in Uganda, but increasingly so during campaign, campaign periods where the dynamic is exacerbated dramatically. The U.S. has an important role to play in improving governance in Central Africa, not only because of bilateral support over decades, both financial and diplomatic, but because of commitments from this administration as well as previous ones. The appointment of a special envoy, starting with Senator, former Senator Russ Feingold, has been hugely important and a real gain for U.S. policy. This type of attention needs to continue. In the case of the Congo, there's long been significant engagement, but the time has come to scale it up significantly. What is needed is a steadfast and coordinated approach that combines carrots and sticks and sets a very clear timeline for the election process and Kabila to step down. There's a chance, there is still a chance to ensure Congo does not follow Burundi's violent and abusive deterioration, but that time may, give, may come short. The U.S. role is pivotal here. U.S. policy towards Uganda has a notable deficit when it comes to support for human rights and the rule of law. Part of this myopic approach has occurred because of the country's role as a key regional player and a misguided belief that criticizing domestic circumstances could negatively result in consequences throughout the region. Little has been said or done in the case of Uganda outside of LGBT-related concerns, which is perhaps the most difficult and intractable situation when it comes to good governance. With the election just a week away, options are minimal. I'd like to make some very quick recommendations that apply more broadly than the two countries that I've discussed. The first is to make better use of public statements. Public expression of concern is very powerful and it's often underestimated. There is a key moment for the administration to make statements both before and after something occurs, but also it is a key tool for members here on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Responsive and preventive statements to encourage restraint in a potentially volatile situation are particularly important. Imposing targeted sanctions. Targeted sanctions show the possibility of real individual consequences for oppressive acts. Using existing executive orders or seeing the full global Magnitsky bill pass through the entire Congress and be signed by the president would help develop this process over a longer period of time. Third, support civil society more consistently. There is a presidential initiative. There have been funds across the continent, although they are dwindling and have dwindled over time. Finally, be cautious on security assistance. It's no secret that governance priorities often take a back seat to regional security initiatives, which are generally focused on short-term operational needs. Security and stability will not come from supporting security forces alone, but from helping to create the space, political and otherwise, for the next generation of political leaders and civil society activists to develop. Thank you, and I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you both for your testimony. Ambassador Meese, um, you sound pretty skeptical uh, about the DRC, uh, their ability to have elections as scheduled. Um, I asked the last panel what, uh, when the, the point of no return comes, when we hit the point where they simply can't do it. Uh, when do you think that is? Or have we passed it? 
Senator, thank you for the question. I, uh, you are correct. Uh, I am. I was ambassador in the DRC uh, for the 2006 elections, and I was there with the UN uh, during the 2011 process that, of course, produced very flawed elections, but, but were held. It gave me a, a good sense, however, of the difficulty and the scale of organizing elections in the Congo. And it is my feeling that, indeed, at this point already, given the lack of timely actions and other problems, in, including the apparent deliberate efforts to, to cause a slippage to the calendar, that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to get to legitimate elections this year. Having said that, I would be reluctant to say that there is a point of no return because the damage that will be created by a delay in the constitutional elections can be mitigated if there was a clear and visible change of course producing uh, concrete and visible action moving toward legitimate elections. In other words, uh, it is more important in my view that there be a process resulting in credible legitimate democratic elections on a timely basis, even if it slips beyond the, the, the formal calendar. But at this point, I don't see any sign of that happening. So um, a, a point of no return in terms of being able to organize elections as they should be as a legitimate exercise this year, uh, I fear has already passed. A point of no return in terms of being able to salvage the situation and move things back into a positive track, uh, I think can certainly still be done. Can you shed some light, uh, Ambassador, on Rwanda's interest, Kagame's interest in both the DRC and Burundi? What What is their preferred outcome? Uh, they seem to be meddling in both. Uh, can you Can you shed some light there? I, I can only speculate what their preferred Understood. outcome might be. Understood. <laughs> um, uh, Rwanda has clear uh, interests uh, in the eastern Congo, uh, dating all the way back to the to the '94 genocide. Given the presence of the uh, large number of people who were a part of the genocide who ended up in the Congo, the existence of what is now called the FDLR. Uh, remnants of uh, of the old uh, militia and, and military security apparatus in Rwanda, and the FDLR is still there. <clears throat> Excuse me. It has resulted, however, in Rwanda often uh, taking actions uh, to directly meddle uh, in eastern Congo, in, including the uh, support of military groups that led to further destabilization and, in my view, contrary to their own interests. Uh, there has long been a question in my mind, as well as others, uh, did they wish to exert de facto uh, political influence and control over Kivus or parts of eastern Congo, uh, influence uh, Kinshasa, or were there ambitions beyond that? And I don't know the answer to that. Fortunately, in my view, thanks to actions taken by the United States and other members of the international community in exerting strong pressure on Rwanda, uh, as well as things coming out of the United Nations. I think their ability to actively meddle in terms of supporting militia groups in Eastern Congo has been severely curtailed. Mm. Uh, that requires ongoing attention, but at this point at least. The recent reports of potential actions in Burundi, however, uh, suggest that the idea of such cross-border interventions or interference uh, certainly has not left uh, the, the mindset in, um, in Rwanda. 
uh, and I think requires uh, ongoing attentiveness as well, and if necessary, more international pressure to ensure that these kinds of unhelpful actions uh, do not exist. Uh, but they are, in fact, in my view, destabilizing. So a problem not only for the country, DRC, Burundi, or any others, uh, but in fact uh, reflect back on Rwanda as well. And I guess one final comment is, I would make is that um, the, uh, these, uh, th these actions in any of the countries, instability, militia groups, uh, so forth, unrest, clearly has cross-border effects. Mm. Anything that occurs in Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Eastern Congo affect the other countries inevitably. Now, logically, that should result in a, in a realization that they share common interests to solve in these these issues and put an end to the unrest, but that has not been the case in the past. Thank you, Ms. Margon. What is the most acute uh, human rights issue right now in the region? Is it Burundi with the reports there? Where, where do you see it? It's a tough question. Uh, thanks for asking it. I mean, we try not to compare one to the other because each one is particular to its own context. I would say the case of Burundi has deteriorated very significantly. Uh, we are seeing new signs of killings and disappearances. So in a sense, things seem to be getting a bit more insidious than they have been over the last 10 months. Um, but I would also say that what we see in Uganda, which is not ne necessarily as outright, outright and overt as um, one way hope, but has decades um, of ongoing experience, the restrictions, the police brutality, the absence of accountability is particularly nefarious and very concerning. In the DRC, should uh, uh, Kabila decide to hold back or move extra-constitutionally uh, um, and impose his will, uh, what potential is there for human rights abuse and, and significant conflict? Thanks. I, I just want to actually add my point. I don't think it's too late at all for Kabila to step down when it comes to the DRC. Time hasn't run out, and in fact, at the last panel, there was much discussion of the potential of sanctions, which I think sends an important message. The implementation of those sanctions, particularly on individuals uh, in Kabil's inner circle who have been aggressive and uh, encouraged repressive acts would be very important, and uh, the timing given the nationwide protests to watch that very closely is important. The potential for human rights abuses uh, and things to move in the wrong direction in the DRC is very likely. Uh, we are nervous about what will happen on February 16th with the, with the mobilization, and we'll be watching closely. Ambassador Mies, um, you mentioned that uh, our actions with regard to sanctions or any activity that we uh, try to impose or encourage on governments there is more effective with regional cooperation. Uh, how likely is it that we can get the kind of cooperation um, on some of these issues, whether it's imposition of sanctions from other governments uh, um, or, um, or other things? Thank you for the question. Uh, I believe uh, it is possible to get uh, significant uh, cooperation. And, and when we speak of the region, I, I'm speaking of the larger region, which includes uh, SADC, South Africa, other countries in Southern Africa, as well as the African Union and other key governments, uh, but as well uh, key partner governments in Europe and elsewhere as well to coordinate actions in terms of sanctions, visa restrictions, or, or other actions. The more that can be brought together into a, a unified voice and unified actions, uh, there is a disproportionate increase in the, in the effectiveness of such actions. And I think we have seen numerous cases of that in the past. But 
I think there is a shared concerns, a shared interest uh, by the African Union. The debates and actions taken relative to Burundi is, is evidence of that. South Africa as a country has played a critical role uh, in Burundi as well as the DRC at different times in the past. Uh, the intervention brigade that I mentioned uh, as a part of MINUSCO is composed of troops from three SADAC countries uh, and reflects a high degree of concern by SADAC and those individual governments in the situation in the Congo, all of which provides a basis uh, for, for coming to uh, some common actions, and I certainly think there are shared uh, values and views by those countries uh, that are practicing democracy uh, and have moved much further down the road uh, in terms of good governance than, uh, than is the case in most of Central Africa. It was mentioned, and I apologize, I forget who mentioned it, that uh, we might have to have some change in rules of engagement or the, the uh, um, rules that these regional security forces uh, are operating under, uh, that uh, general UN peacekeeping role may not be r robust enough to deal with, uh, I think somebody said, active conflicts. Uh, can you comment on that? I'd, I'd be happy to, and uh, my time as heading the UN mission in the, in the Congo was, uh, uh, was a considerable education process for me in several respects. But uh, I also came to the conclusion that contemporary peacekeeping continues to, to operate within a paradigm of, of post-conflict assumptions. And in fact, the situation in Eastern Congo, as well as Mali, South Sudan, and, and others, are not post-conflict. These are active conflicts. Mm -hmm. And so then the peacekeeping force uh, becomes uh, obliged to try to adapt these post-conflict structures, authorities, uh, managing or dealing with active conflict resolution or management or some form, and it doesn't work very well. Uh, we, the intervention brigade as a MINUSCO, I think evolved out of regional concerns primarily initially, precisely arising out of that, uh, and given that intervention brigade was given the uh, authority on an extraordinary basis for quote targeted offensive operations to use the language of the appropriate Security Council resolution. Uh, this is not to say that there are military solutions available to Eastern Congo or the other situations, but I do think that there is a need to have a capability for enforcement for the, to deal with those actors or players or entities that are not interested in political solu mm -hmm. solutions or actively trying to block them uh, to help create the space that is needed to get to political solutions. And I think we are seeing um, examples of, of uh, uh, an attempt to adapt to that, for example, in, in Mali with the French forces there and others, but I don't think we yet have a good alignment between the, the basic assumptions of contemporary peacekeeping and too often the situations uh, that those peacekeeping missions uh, where they are deployed. And I, I guess as a final note, I, I fully support the efforts that was discussed earlier in terms of an Africa Union force to Burundi. But I think it's very important to have clarity as well as to what the rules will be for such a force to go there, assuming uh, that that will eventually be approved by the African Union. What authorities, what capabilities 
under what restrictions can they respond to threats to civilians or, uh, or mass violence? Well, thank you. That's helpful. I, you know, these issues are not new. I happened to be living in Namibia uh, in 1989, April 1, uh, the, the beginning of uh, Resolution 435's implementation. Um, and uh, there was an incursion across the border in the middle of the night, the last day, and uh, the question of how do we rectify this? Untag uh, the UN force was not capable, or it wasn't in their purview to do that. Um, but it was, fortunately, it uh, had a good uh, ending there, and they were able to put it back on track. But it is, uh, these issues are tough um, as to who is doing the peacekeeping and what authorities they have, um, and it's important. Ms. Margot, um, you mentioned that uh, with regard to an example um, for stepping down after your terms, uh, we have uh, Museveni uh, in Uganda 30 years later. Uh, how does that lack of moral authority <laughs> help out if he's uh, the one being kind of tasked with, uh, with helping in this situation? But uh, is planning to stay in office a lot longer himself, likely. How, how does that complicate matters when we simply don't have the examples that we need? Yeah, it's a very good question, Mr. Chairman. And I think one of the things we've seen in the case of Uganda is that he has made himself, he has fashioned himself into such an import, important regional ally from Somalia to other Great Lakes countries that in some sense there is a belief that he is indispensable and a critical component when it comes to regional issues. But let's not forget that uh, President, Museveni ha President Museveni has his own vested interests in some of these regional issues. And if the US were to um, push a bit harder and engage on both carrots and sticks vis-a-vis -vis the domestic situation that we might not see a change in his regional role. Um, there has time and time again been support for him and his uh, ruling party to engage regionally, but very little engagement on the domestic environment. I was pleased to see the State Department release um, a statement expressing concern about the election, the pre-election environment about a month ago. Um, but this is an example where given the 30-year um, head start, uh, statements alone are not going to do it. Well, thank you. Um, do you have anything else to add before we uh, adjourn the hearing? Looks like my colleagues are on the floor where I need to be soon. <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate the testimony that uh, you've given. Um, again, it'll all be in the record. And uh, if you could respond to questions that come within the next couple of days, the hearing record will remain open uh, for the answer to questions. But uh, again, uh, you have the committee's thanks for your expertise and for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.